0: Mirrors and windows, they're pretty similar things, really. They're both made of glass. They feel pretty similar to the touch. They've got a similar weight to them. They come in the same sort of shapes and sizes. But imagine for just a moment that you get your mirrors and your windows all mixed up. I mean, what if you had this great big mirror that you just love to look at, but you thought it was a mirror? I mean, you thought it was a window. And so every time you looked at it, you thought you were seeing this really annoying person that just kept interrupting you over and over again. And you really wish they wouldn't stand so close to your house, but every time you looked through your window, there they were. It was kind of creepy, even. The only nice part about this is that that person at least had all the right opinions. He or she thinks like you, comes to the same thoughts as you, had the same interests in you. This is what you saw, all because you never realized that you're looking at a mirror, not a window. And if that were actually the case, which is kind of hard to believe, but if it were the case, you might be come to believe some pretty confusing things about the world, wouldn't you? I mean, there'd be an awful lot of confirmation bias. What you think and what, how you believe, it just gets affirmed over and over again. And that is how we have tended to approach the Bible. For the last few weeks, I've been trying to suggest that we often approach the Bible like it is a window, like we can see through it to know clearly the heart of God. But the Bible is much more like a mirror than a window. The gift of the Bible is that it's always reflecting back to us our own struggles to know and understand God. It, It reflects back to us our own soul's journey of finding God and then losing God These moments of divine inspiration and then completely misunderstanding the point or these moments of being welcomed home and and then wandering off. The story of the Bible is a mirror trying to help us see ourselves more clearly. Now let's turn the example around for just a moment. Imagine that you have some beautiful cabin way up on a hillside or a mountain somewhere and this cabin has these beautiful open windows Uh, where there are these amazing vistas out on the other side, only you look at that glass and only think it is a mirror. So you're not actually looking through the window. Instead, you end up with this odd fascination with the glass itself. You notice the water spots on it. You notice the texture of the glass. You notice that sometimes you actually get two images of yourself, and then you realize, oh, there's actually two pieces of glass there, and there's an interesting vacuum seal all there in between them. And you spend all kinds of time looking at the surface of the glass but never actually looking through it off into the beautiful mystery beyond the glass. Seems to me that's how we have often approached Jesus. We spend a lot of times trying to dissect the historical details of what did and didn't happen in the Gospels, try to understand it. We get so focused on the glass that we don't look through the window. But Jesus is more like a window, really the best window we have into what God is like. That's what our confession of faith from Colossians that we read just a moment ago was really trying to say is, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the representation of God's being. In other words, when we look deeply through Jesus, we begin to look through a window into the mysterious heart of God. That belief is what makes us Christians, that Jesus is our window that we use to try to best understand God. So last week I talked about the scriptures, having this forward movement and this backwards movement of coming to know who God is and then losing the point. Jesus is the one that actually helps us to see when the story is moving forward, to see the point point in the trajectory all along, which means then that Jesus is our lens through which we read the scripture. Jesus is the lens for recognizing when the story of the Bible or the story of our own lives for that self that that matter is wandering off into the dark wood of error. versus when it's actually making forward movements into knowing and discovering the heart of God. Or if that's kind of too convoluted, just real simply, Jesus kind of shows us what God is actually up to in this world. It's kind of what the Bible is saying about itself. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of God's being. Scripture, on the other hand, remember from a few weeks ago, Scripture is inspired and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. But Christ is the image of the invisible God, not Scripture. So the Bible as a whole is not a window nearly as much as it is a mirror. And it's really important that we don't get our windows and our mirrors all mixed up. In fact, we see just how important that is when we come to the stories of Ruth and Ezra. Ruth and Ezra are both these really ancient stories, but they're actually separated by about 800 years. It's a pretty long time, right? So Ruth, she comes in the time of the judges when 12 tribes had settled into the promised land, but way before there were any kings in Israel. So it's before the time of David, before the time of the first king Saul, before the time of Solomon... That's when Ruth is there, and Ruth actually ends up becoming then the great-grandma of King David, and the child of Ruth was part of the point, <laughs> because that's what happened. That's what it- where the story ends. It's all really moving towards who was the baby in the room. Ruth becomes the great-grandma of King David. It's why her story matters so much, and it's why it's passed down to us. Ezra on the other hand like I was saying is comes from 800 years later so Ezra comes generations and generations after the time of the very last king all the kings of Israel have come and go and so now it's they've gone into the time of exile and Babylon and now even after that it's coming in the time when the exiles are being allowed to come back home 800 years later so like I said, Ruth and Ezra, they're separated by 800 years chronologically. But theologically speaking, they are separated by two competing ideologies in the Bible. These two stories are pushing against each other. They're wrestling with each other. And they're both held here in our scriptures so that we will have to wrestle with them too. So that we can learn to recognize these same competing ideologies in us today but in order to do that well you have to know the story so I'm gonna real quickly try to summarize these two stories Ruth is a Moabite woman who marries an Israelite the son of Naomi well then Naomi's husband and her son die and so Naomi decides she's going to return to Israel actually to Bethlehem that's where she's from And so she decides she's going to return back to Bethlehem, but she tells her foreign married-in daughter-in-law to just go back to her own family. But Ruth refuses. And so Ruth is a foreigner in the Promised Land. She's an uninvited immigrant in Israel. And to top all of that off, she's not just any foreigner. She was a Moabite. And to understand what that means, we have to go all the way back to Genesis 19, to that famous story of Sodom and Gomorrah when it was all destroyed. You might remember there was Abraham's nephew Lot and his family were living in Sodom and Gomorrah and an angel warned them to flee because God was going to destroy it. And when you flee, don't look back. And so that's what they did. Only Lot's wife, she looked back and you remember what happened? She turns into a pillar of salt, right? You guys remember that because you had like these coloring sheets in Sunday school and you all colored in Lot and his two daughters, but... The wife you had to color in with glue stick and shake salt on her so you'd remember, don't look back. (laughs) I'm guessing, anyway, but I also bet that's where you stopped reading the story. You didn't ever hear much about the last part of Genesis 19 because what happens next is not children's Sunday school material. Lot and his two daughters, they flee off into the mountains into a cave, and his daughters are what you might call the young and the restless, and there's no men around. And when they look out on the horizon on, out of their cave, all they can see is hail and brimstone coming down from the heavens, destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. It looks like the whole world to them is being destroyed. Maybe humanity itself is coming to an end and so Lot's daughters come up with a crazy idea to keep humanity going. They get their father completely drunk. And once he is wasted, they sleep with him in order to get pregnant. And it works. They each have a son by their father. The youngest daughter names her son Ben-Ami, and he becomes the father of the Ammonites. Ami, Ammonites. The eldest daughter, who came up with this whole sordid Plan, she has a son and names him Moab. And he becomes the father of the Moabites. The Moabites, in other words, are people born of an incestuous relationship. Why did Israel save that story? Apparently, they didn't have a very high opinion of their neighbors, the Moabites. And the fact that Ruth is a Moabite is no trivial story in the telling of the story of Ruth. In fact, the narrator keeps coming back to it again and again just to make sure we don't forget. At the end of chapter 1, the narrator writes, Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite. Chapter 2, verse 2, Ruth the Moabite. It almost like becomes her title In the story. Verse 6 of chapter 2, when Boaz asks who she is, he's told, Oh, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab. In other words, don't forget for a moment where she is from. She is a Moabite. Oh, gross. What is she doing here? Well, the story goes on, and Ruth is out harvesting in the field of a man named Boaz, and she catches his eye. And later, one night, during the harvest, she catches his breath. Ruth and her mother-in-law come up with a plan, a plan that sounds a lot like what happened in Genesis chapter 19 with Lot and his daughters. You see, during the harvest, the men would all gather on the threshing floor, and women weren't allowed, and they would thresh the wheat and the, the crop, and they would drink late into the night, and no women were allowed So Ruth, she sneaks on to the threshing floor and hides where no women are allowed, and she waits until all the men are drunk and half asleep, a lot like Lot's daughters. And Boaz is one of the men. there on the threshing floor, and he's drunk, and with all kinds of evocative language and Hebrew innuendos, we hear about Ruth, quote, uncovering Boaz's feet and laying down with him. But you know, isn't that what you'd expect from a Moabite woman? Taking advantage of our Israelite men, Boaz, when he's drunk. <laughs> and then even convincing him to marry her. Can you imagine it? I mean, that's, that's worse than like a Capulet and a Montague getting together. <laughs> now that's worse than someone from royal's country marrying someone from cardinal's country. I mean, what kind of half-breed children are they going to have? might come out purple instead of being binary like the rest of us they might root for both teams and we wouldn't want that would we well like I said earlier the children are part of the point of the story this is King David's heritage which means that King David's great-grandma is an uninvited immigrant with a sexually deviant heritage who follows that heritage and seduces an upstanding citizen of Bethlehem. I'm guessing that's how they didn't teach you the story in VBS, (laughs) but that's actually what's going on here. In fact, the more you think about it, it's kind of surprising that after that night on the threshing floor, they didn't just lock Ruth up or kick her out of Dodge. I mean, she was defiling God's people. seemed like it would have been pretty easy to come to the conclusion that the best thing to do would have been just to kick her out of the promised land, don't you think? I mean, 800 years later, that's the conclusion that Ezra comes to. 800 years later, generations and generations, Ezra and the people of God, they've been off in exile in Babylon, and now they are coming back home to the promised land, and Ezra, he's probably like the second or the third generation that starts making their way back. And when Ezra gets back, he starts looking around, and he sees that, oh my goodness, the people of God have intermarried with all these foreign women, including Moabites, if you listened to the list. And they have these mixed up families with half-breed children, oh my goodness. You see, when a lot of exiles, they've been back for a long time, but, you know, things weren't like they had heard the stories of Solomon and King David. Things were a mess, and they wanted to make Israel great again. And according to Ezra, the only way to make Israel great again was to purify the people and to get rid of all of these foreigners. And so that's exactly what they decide to do. In fact, everyone is required to get rid of them. It doesn't matter if you've been married to your foreign wife for five months or 50 years, if she is a foreigner, she must go, and so must all those half-breed, defiling children of hers. I know it sounds a little harsh, Ezra says, but it is really the only way. Get rid of them, and life will be great again, I promise. They are the problem. It's the oldest tendency in the book, you know. it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, scapegoat someone else, especially if they have less power than you. It was this woman you gave me, Adam says to God. It's really as old and as modern as love and hate and fear. If we just get rid of all the Jews, they're defiling us, Hitler said. It's those black people, they're ruining our neighborhoods, so many of our grandparents said. It's those gay people, they're defiling our nation, Franklin Graham says today. It's as ancient and as commonplace as it gets. Make someone else the problem and you never have to deal with yourself and your own darkness. See, the Bible is a mirror trying to help us see ourselves and what we actually do. And this is what we do. It happens again and again. Make some other people who are different from you the problem. That's number one. Wrap up your solution in religious language. That's number two. And number three, you can get away with murder. That's happened over and over again, and it's still happening today because we haven't learned to read the scriptures as a mirror. It's exactly what Ezra does send these women and children away out into the wilderness, out of the protection of their tribe and family, it was a death sentence. But according to Ezra and those men counseling him, it's what must be done if we want to make Israel great again. It's what must be done, even more importantly, if we want God's blessing to fall on us again. When the truth is, it's nothing less than ethnic cleansing And it's justified right here in our Bible. Our Bible. So what do you do with a text like that? (laughs) Well, I guess you could say, well, you know, God's thoughts are bigger than my thoughts, and God's ways bigger than my ways, and maybe God will sometimes tell us to do something that seems really awful, but God must have a bigger plan. We just, we got to trust blindly. It's what a lot of the church will tell you today. It's what a lot of white Christians have said for a long time because we've had to say it over and over again to justify what we do. The problem is we've been reading the Bible like a window instead of a mirror. There's this story, an old story that comes from Nazi Germany where there was this Jewish fugitive who was on the run. And he came to this small little village and he thought surely the safest place where he could go and hide for the night would be the home of the pastor in the village. So he figured out which home that was and he knocked on the door and he asked, can you just put me up for one night and then I'll be on my way in the morning. The pastor was pretty nervous about the whole thing. He, he knew he needed to do the right thing. And so he left the man there and he ran to open his Bible, seeking wisdom from the scriptures. And wouldn't you know it, he happened to open up right to that verse in John where it says, it's better for one man to die than for all the people to perish. And so the pastor knew he must have received his answer from God, so he went back to the Jewish man at the door and he said, No, I'm sorry. I I wish I could help you, but I can't. This might be hard to hear, but it's better for you to die than for our whole village to perish. Well, the story goes on, and later that same night, an angel visited the pastor And the angel asked him where the Jewish refugee was. And the pastor told the angel, oh, I read the holy scriptures. And I discerned rightly what God would have me do, that it's better for one man to die than the whole people to perish. So I protected your village for you, O God. And the angel said to him, did you not know that this man was in fact the Christ? If you had looked into his eyes instead of the book, you would have seen the difference. If you had looked into his eyes, Jesus is the window through which we can peer into the heart of God. The Bible isn't a window, it's a gift to us, and it is a gift, is that it's a mirror. It's a mirror of our own God consciousness. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, training, correcting, and righteousness, 1 Timothy 3.16 says, or 2 Timothy, whatever it is. But it is a mirror. And recognizing the difference between the mirrors and the windows can make all the difference for us. And when we start to realize that Ezra is a mirror, you know, you'd never use it to justify ethnic cleansing. You'd start to think, well, maybe this is... A story that's been saved, not to tell us what God is like, but to help us just be aware of how dangerous our God talk and our religious justifications can be. And how easily we can get it all mixed up and confused about what God would actually have us do. So why did they tell this story again and again and then write it down and save it? Remember that's the question I came to last week not what is we what are we learning about God here but why did they tell this story and why did they save it Well maybe it's here to help us guard against the same tendencies in us that we still struggle with today maybe the gift of Ezra is there just to help us own that our own beloved faith in God has also been twisted to enact great violence on those who look differently than us, and those who worship differently than us, and those who live differently than us, basically on any group that we might decide is a threat to our way of life or is defiling us. You know, thanks be to God, there were a few men in Ezra's day that tried to protest against what Ezra's decree was. There were four men in that crowd that stood up against the whole tide. But no one listened to them. They lost the argument. But I I just, I can't help but wonder if these four men sat around the campfire that night with some of their neighbors and their children, maybe some of their grandchildren, that night when their hearts were broken and they told them, The story of Ruth the Moabite, that foreign woman who'd seduced Boaz and became his wife, and every time they told that story, they made sure to end it the same way we heard it ended today, the same way the scriptures still end it today, by reminding us that Ruth also had a half-breed child, and this child became the redemption of Israel. This child grew and became the grandpa of King David, the greatest king in Israel's history. King David, whose line will reign on the throne forever. That Moabite woman, her womb, became the womb of our salvation. That Moabite woman, her womb, became the... Great, great, great grandmother of Jesus, who, the one who reveals to us the very nature of God. Jesus, the one who says, guess what? The first are going to end up last. And the last will end up first, the one who says, you know what, the tax collectors and prostitutes and people on the outside, they're hungry for God more than the rest of you. So they're going to enter that kingdom of God reality way sooner than the religious elite and all their religious language and all their confidence about what God is doing or not doing. She becomes the womb who gives us Jesus, whose great themes are grace and inclusion and welcoming and forgiveness you see how there's a trajectory in the Bible (laughs) and how it's not a straight line trajectory, but it's a forward and backward movement, a wandering and a coming back, and you see how it mirrors us still today in our own struggles in our churches, in our lives. It helps us to recognize our own growing awareness of God, this forward and backward movement, because the Bible is not there as an answer book so that we can be sure we've got it all nailed down. It's there to teach us about the journey of discovering God. It's a mirror. And so let me invite you to see that you and I, we all, us, we are often the defiling presence in the kingdom reality of God's love and grace. But there's good news that Jesus, the Moabite woman's great, great, great grandson has become our redeemer and guess what? He welcomes us anyway. (laughs) No matter who we are and no matter how defiled our story has been or how defiled it gets along the way, no matter how dead wrong or hard hearted I have been at times, he invites me and you and all of us into the beloved community of God's healing and grace. Only if we'll come, he does make a demand of us. Coming requires that we too will invite and welcome and forgive and embrace everyone else into this beloved community as well. This is where the Bible is taking us to the glorious, upside-down, beautiful, expansive reality of the kingdom of God. Amen.